Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. The pursuit of mastery, the pursuit of excellence, to me, is actually the most inspiring of human concepts. When we think about the possibilities of who we could be and the idea that daily incremental improvement is available to all of us, I think that is why people love human potential so much. Today's episode is from the Meta Performance Show, where I sit down with high performers who continually aspire to go beyond high performance. On this episode, I sit down with former Navy SEAL and tech entrepreneur, Brian Ferguson. Before becoming a SEAL, Brian worked for the Secretary of Defense, and after serving in Naval Special Warfare, he took what he learned about self-mastery, world-class performance in elite teams to found Arena Labs, a company pioneering the field of high-performance medicine. He's faculty of the Singularity University and also co-chairs the Symposia for Limits of Human Performance at the Santa Fe Institute. We talk about how to pursue excellence in leadership and public speaking, and Brian shares about the leaders he respects most and what they do that other leaders don't. We hope you enjoy the show. Brian Ferguson, nice to, I can see you, but also nice to hear you. How are you doing, man? Right on. I'm great. Good to be here, Jay. Yeah, and now you're in the wonderful city of Nashville, is that right? I am. New new transplant, six months in, so almost six months, almost seven months now. What inspired the move? Because you moved a couple times. There was a few pivots that you made during the pandemic time, is that right? Yeah, so I think like most of us, the pandemic, definitely probably the most radical changes in my life in a high dense period that I've ever gone through. But as it relates to geography, got out of the military, moved back to Southern California, and at the time, we were looking at Austin, Texas. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are in Austin, which I know is a rad city, a lot going on, but it started to feel like a cliche being a California transplant <laughs> in Austin. Uh-huh. Uh, also looked at every mountain town you can imagine through the Rockies, which also is really cool. But given that Arena Labs, my company was just starting to grow, I wanted to be somewhere where there's a little more access to metropolitan, all that comes with that, particularly from an intellectual perspective and resources. Mm-hmm. But then COVID changed that narrative. So it was supposed to move to Austin in May, right before COVID, right? in you know, May of 20, and then went back to Cleveland to take care of family when COVID happened and ended up being in Cleveland for 10 months. Awesome to be back in the Midwest, love Cleveland, but wasn't ready to live mm-hmm. there and started to look at cities on this side of the Mississippi and mm-hmm. Nashville, for those listening who are on the fence, highly recommend it. Michael Davidson, a mutual friend of ours, uh, was probably the catalyst that, that got us here, but uh, came out last November, checked it out and finally got to a point, I don't know, when you can live anywhere, it becomes daunting. And it was just like, all right, time to make a decision. And Nashville was it, and it's been awesome. Yeah, I love that. I mean, we might dive into a little bit about the decision-making process for that and rubrics and everything. And how I want to get started with this, Brian, one is your company has one of the coolest names ever, Arena Labs. And yeah. I, I love even more, this is a nice frame for some of the things I want to dive in with you. Everything we're going to be talking about uh, are things that you model well and things that you inspire me towards as we've gotten to know each other over the last couple of years. So tell us a little bit about the origin story for Arena Labs. Where did the name come from? Yeah, so my life was massively impacted, I should say, continues to still be massively impacted by Teddy Roosevelt. So Mm -hmm. president, uh, at one point was governor of New York, massively responsible for expanding the national parks, just a man who lived an extraordinary life as an intellectual, he wrote books, he was after his presidency, exploring the Amazon, this is back, you know, in a time when we there weren't even maps for some of these places. I mean, Mm -hmm. just lived an extraordinarily larger than life journey. Hmm. And so two things really impacted me. So so many listeners probably have heard what is often popularized as the man in the arena quote. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, two places that a lot of people will likely have heard it will either be Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly. Mm-hmm. Uh, she borrows a lot from that quote, which I'll come back to, and also LeBron James. LeBron James, uh, at one point, I don't know if he's still doing it, was writing Man in the Arena on his sneakers for mm-hmm. games. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the quote itself, in the very sort of short version, in my in sort of layman's terms, is that in life, there are people on the sidelines or there are people in the arena. And Roosevelt says at one point in this speech, it is not the critic who counts, but the man who is in the arena, marred by dust and sweat and blood, who knows the great victories of success and the great failures of defeat. Mm-hmm. And he goes on for this beautifully just eloquent description of like, life is either about choosing to do hard things or being on the sidelines of life and being critical of the people who are actually doing hard things. And we see this obviously play out in our current political rhetoric, but like, mm-hmm. At the end of the day, for me, I've always been drawn to people who go do that hard thing and mm-hmm. in an arena. And so fast forward, you know, I came out of the, my time in the military. I think that was that that framework really inspired me, this idea of people doing hard things. In fact, a lot of my teammates that I went through military training mm-hmm. with came out of the Naval Academy, had to memorize part of that speech. Mm-hmm. I find the DNA of it. It's like doing hard things in life for me has been sort of a personal anthem. Um, what's more important, though, I think for listeners who are interested in that, I highly recommend Google Citizenship in a Republic, which is the speech that Roosevelt gave in 1910. So he had finished his presidency. He goes to France. He's at the Sorbonne in Paris, which is like the University of Paris. He's speaking to this audience of French intellectuals who are all very accomplished people. And he's basically saying, look, number one, even though you're accomplished, you still have an obligation to do hard things in society and to advance our collective. He then goes on to say, a society is only as good as the average of its leaders and the average of its citizenry. And the only way we can elevate the average citizen is to have a higher expectation of our leaders. And it's just, again, like the framework is amazing. So for me, I've obviously, as you know, that when I was thinking about building a company, the duality of arena and laboratory, a laboratory of people who have experience in a wide range of arenas doing hard things. The essence that creates for me is it's a powerful cachet to, to take really anywhere. Yeah, well, in the primary people that you serve or the kind of the apex model of that, you know, you didn't pick just any ordinary clientele to focus Arena Labs onto. You picked one of the most intense and high pressure types of clients you could ever pick. Could you tell us more about who you serve? So, so at Arena Labs, we, you know, we say we're pioneering the field of high performance medicine. And, and so our, we are radically focused on frontline medical practitioners, nurses, doctors, surgeons, technicians. Uh, And this was prior to the pandemic. The pandemic has obviously elevated the urgency of our work. Uh, But for me, and I'm sure we'll get into this, I was very fortunate to have a life working with extraordinary men and women in the military and parts of national security. And I was not a professional athlete, but worked around a lot of pro athletes And so I saw that we were giving these people who were doing hard things in those other disciplines were given a set of tools to manage stress and anxiety so that they could perform under pressure when it counts, whether that, again, is in the field of sport, military battlefield, or in the creative arts on stage. And I've I've always been amazed that we don't do that for our frontline medical practitioners. And so Arena Labs, it's it's dedicated to the idea when we look at the future of world-class healthcare, it's not in policy, technology or in regulatory solutions, it's in building high-performing teams. Yeah. And so we do that by bringing the wisdom of those other arenas into frontline healthcare. 
I love that. And, and it's going well and it's fun to see you be successful in that space and even dream bigger and continue to build and partner with incredible people. Maybe we'll get into that in a little bit. But before that, I want to go backwards a little bit. So you mentioned about this, this appetite and attraction towards people who want to do hard things. Mm-hmm. And not only, I feel like not only are you attracted to that, but you, you model that. Before we get into some of those obvious things, you know, like our listeners by now, if they listen to the beginning of this episode, they know that you are a former SEAL and those types of things. Have you always been attracted to like doing hard things, like where, where did that come from? And the reason why I'm asking is taking, by the way, you say, you, I think you say it correctly. I've always been taught to say Roosevelt, but it's Roosevelt. So I'm going to say it the way that you're saying it. You know, I actually, um, as an aside, I, the short answer is I don't know. I think you called me on this and I should ask this, but I, I'm embarrassed that I don't actually know. We'll um, call for this episode, we'll, we'll get, we'll get responses. <laughs> You'll find out from the, the audience. I'm sure will teach us how to say his name. Hey, quick, quick pinpoint. Cause I'm sure you have a lot of listeners who love that quote or love Roosevelt right now. It's actually a, a, a pretty sort of historic effort, but the Teddy Roosevelt presidential library is being built in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a whole bunch of fascinating reasons why, but it's being built in Dickinson, which is, or it's actually, it's actually Medora, which is outside of Dickinson, sort of the largest city in the Western North Dakota Governor Burgum there has done an amazing job of bringing resources together in Roosevelt when he had sort of this monumental moment in his life that his wife had passed. He went to the Badlands to recover and always said that that was what propelled him to the presidency. Hmm. It is a super cool exercise in build. I would say like, let's be honest, presidential libraries are pretty boring. Like you go for a field trip. (laughs) They're building like the modern digital presidential library. They partnered with a world-class architecture firm. It's going to be really cool. So you wow. guys check that out. That's great. Yeah. And well, and, and in that vein, you know, when he was giving that speech, and by the way, you, maybe another time we can talk about your amazing propensity for gift giving. So you gave to me and a bunch mm-hmm. of other guys a bound book of his speech, which I had never read in its entirety before. So I had it next to my bed for a couple of nights and you can read it in very few yeah. sittings. And I was like, my goodness, this is so relevant. All the things that you just said that he was talking about is so incredibly timely. And this jumps into the question because I feel as though Roosevelt didn't need to give that speech unless people don't naturally gravitate towards doing hard things. Yeah. So I see you stand out in that way. And so I'm trying to figure out if the world would be better if people did gravitate towards doing hard things. And maybe there's some nuance to that, but like, I want to talk about your DNA a little bit. Like when you were young, was that there for you? And if not, when did that start to develop for you? I don't know that. Well, the, the short answer is that I was very fortunate to grow up in a family where my mom was one of nine. So I had 20 cousins and eight aunts and uncles, all six of my uncles, they had come out of blue collar. My grandfather, my mom's dad had been in the steel industry. He was actually a world war II fighter pilot who escorted long range bombers from Iwo Jima to Japan, like amazing, whole nother story. Yeah. Came back from that. Aviation was his passion. Settles back in Cleveland though, and goes into the steel industry. His kids, my, my six uncles, all of them at one point worked in either the steel industry or the trades. And they're just like the essence of grit. I mean, I always say like the things that come out of Cleveland or the Midwest, I think in general is like a real understanding of hard work, Hmm. a real value around community and family and like connection. And those things were very present in my life. And then my mom, you know, my mom was a nurse and she worked in retrospect insanely hard, you know, as a nurse and then getting up at 430 in the morning, going to work, coming home, you know, cooking, cleaning, did a lot of these sort of quote unquote traditional duties as well. So I absorbed people who were doing hard things, working hard. Yeah, I think I gravitated towards that probably later in life, like the military. I mean, I was always drawn to adventure and I was fortunate 
you know, a, a book that I love, Wild at Heart by John Eldridge, yeah. talks about the sort of pioneering spirit of young men. Yeah. And I grew up in an environment where we had a very simple, small town west of Cleveland, and my life was spent outdoors with friends in the woods. And that sounds sort of like idyllic and retrospective, but it allowed me to experience adventure. And I think the essence of doing hard things is in the pursuit of a desire to find edges and new experiences in life. Yeah, and I wonder, I want to kick this around with you just a little bit if you're up for it. As you're talking, that like the adventure and the kind of the blank canvas of life and getting out there. Like when I was a kid, I grew up in the suburbs. So, so our woods were like unfinished houses that we would ride our bikes to and like, yep. or, but there was this unsupervised exploration. You're kind of learning agency, you're learning autonomy. I also feel like with hard work comes a, a sense of meaning and yeah, a, sense 100%. Of a purpose. And I wonder if there's a connection between learning how to invest sacrificially in something and having the existential experience of purpose and fulfillment. Totally. And I mean, this stuff has transcended Roosevelt. It's transcended any experience that Brian Ferguson or Jason Jaggard had. I mean, you look at even Seneca, you know, a quote I love, no man is more unhappy than he who never faces adversity, hmm. for he is not permitted to prove himself. And there's a separate conversation about the loop we can get in of constant achievement service and exploration outside the bounds of one's own geography where, where he or she is raised is so important, whether that's in the military, whether it's going abroad and, and serving, like those things force us into some adversity that I think is so important in self-actualization. Hmm. And I think doing hard things, a lot of times we equate that to the physical application of the body. That doesn't always have to be the case. Um, now, separate conversation. I actually think that in modern society, we discount physicality and the importance of physicality, particularly for young men mm. and frankly, for some young women. But for me, it was very, very important. And I think at the end of the day, as you're suggesting, hard work. I mean, the, 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 everything that goes into doing things outside of our comfort zone is it's the only way we grow. A lot of topics there, because I even reflect on my own life now, I, I suppose feel a little vulnerable saying this, but even now I'm, I'm 40 and I'm thinking about how can I explore the, for lack of a better phrase, the masculine spirit in terms of my own physical prowess and not just working out, but I thought about maybe taking like Taekwondo or something just yeah. to explore that part of my psyche and see how it positively impacts other parts of my psyche in a way of yeah. just challenging myself physically. Now, I feel like that probably comes naturally to you. This is what's fun about you too, Brian, is you, you're a, a fun hybrid of intellectual and adventure and challenging your body. I mean, it really is a fun paradox most people kind of pick a lane, you know, you've got the stereotypes of like the meathead who's not, who doesn't like to read. <laughs> and then the egghead who uses their body to get their head around the meetings. And you encompass both of those for our audience. You're going to see that as, as Brian and I keep talking. And you can even see that now as he has, you know, he, not only is he Navy SEAL, but he also has uh, Seneca quotes memorized. And actually, let me ask you, is that unique among SEALs? Or do you find that there are actually a lot of SEALs who have a capacity or an appetite for developing their minds as much as their bodies? Oh, I mean, I, I think, I mean, a couple things. Number one, I'm humbled by that statement, but but two, like it is, it's a, just a lifetime of commitment to learning for me. And I think that is unequivocally probably what's the most underappreciated and the most powerful cachet of, of the SEAL community and of special operations is it is a group of, well, and, and as operators, men who are radically dedicated to learning and becoming expert learners and not all pursue that maybe intellectually in terms of books, but these are all people who are extremely 
passionate learners, whether that's, you know, learning a weapon system or learning a tactic or communications, but you would be amazed at how many are incredibly deeply read uh, across a wide range of topics. So I always felt deeply intellectually humbled. It was frankly what drew me into the space. I was working in the Pentagon with a number of special operations leaders and I think the archetype that we often idealize in society is one of this sort of, it's all about physicality, which of course, physicality is important, but that's like table stakes. Hmm. Being physical and physically tough, frankly, is not that hard. Hmm. Being intellectually elevated and emotionally elevated is like a whole nother layer of pursuit. And that's where you get, you know, that that's like the true essence of, of great warriors. And I know you and I are both fans of Stephen Pressfield and we've got to hang out with him, which mm-hmm. is a lot of fun. Is that something that was apparent to you? Like when you joined the SEALs, is that something you were expecting or is that something that you cultivated through the process of becoming a SEAL? I was a probably a little more unique again, because I, you know, when I joined the military, I was 28 in my prior life going in was mainly working in the defense and intelligence space as a civilian in that space, I was exposed to a lot of leaders, both in the SEAL teams and, you know, the Ranger battalions and in special forces. And I saw that the common thread was people, again, who were physically capable, but far more impressively intellectually capable. Hmm. And if you think about the moment in time, and this is like mid, you know, 2005, 2006, that was a moment where we had two wars going on, both of which the strategic impetus was put upon special operations. So, carrying a massive burden um, in, in you know, two wars. And so all that came out of that learning was accelerating and, and, and then getting really good at selecting and assessing talent. So you had this pipeline of amazing people coming in, all of whom are just intellectually really impressive. And then, of course, you fit right in. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying this to be overly humble. I, I promise you, um, yeah, you, you like I'm, I am uh, probably one of the, the – the least impressive of, of my teammates that, you know, I'm really proud to have served with. And I, again, I'm, that's not trying to be overly humble. I just want to put a pin in something you said earlier, yeah. uh, because this is something I aspire to. And I just want to share it with your audience because I love it as a mantra. It's not the pursuit. Cause I think I can find myself in this edge between we all want to be hungry. We are all hungry to learn and to read deeper and understand the world, particularly for me through the prism of like prior thinkers, hmm. like someone, you know, and what are the common threads between Seneca and Roosevelt? And then the flip side of that is like, how does one maintain physicality and longevity in, in a healthy way? The term that I love, in fact, two good friends of mine from Hawaii, when I was stationed in Hawaii, were civilians and they'd started a company and their mantra uh, was be globally comfortable, hmm. be globally comfortable. And what I loved is I think about it like, can you be comfortable hiking in the Amazon with a group of explorers and at the same time sit in a library somewhere in Scotland and think about you know, the intellectual renaissance of, of a prior era, hmm. or can you sit down at a, a black tie dinner and then turn around and, you know, go on a five mile run? Like that to me is this awesome pursuit of like, wherever you're dropped in the world, whatever that context, be comfortable. That's incredible. What was the context for you learning that? How did they tell you that? Well, I just, I've always found that as a personal mantra, but I, I stole, I shouldn't steal it. I, I, I was privileged. Um, my friends, Jen and Parker, who started this company called Eroics, that was their, that was the brand that they had. Hmm. And so it was actually a, a men's boxer brief company, <laughs> but they had the most brilliant branding. It was like, how do you think about being comfortable in anywhere in the world? And like, they, they, anyways, it was um, a good friend of mine when I was in the military used to say, you should be able to be deadlifted in the gym 
at 6 a.m. and briefing the president at 6 p.m. And I was like, that is a badass way to pursue. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. And that's inspiring. Well, and that speaks to, you know, so if there were themes for this conversation as I was, you know, doing some research for you and, and thinking about what I'd really enjoy talking with you about, one, of course, is the doing hard things. And I think that shows up a lot in your work. But the other thing that I really admire about you and I think there's a connection here between doing hard things, but it's not just about doing hard things. Uh, there's, it's like doing hard things well. And there's this conversation around excellence that I really respect and look up to you for and learn and like study you about and try to implement my own life. And, you know, cause I think sometimes, and you and I've talked about this privately and personally in terms of you can, you can idolize doing hard things and I think that's kind of what you're speaking to in terms of longevity, where you you do hard things just to do hard things, and then you destroy yourself doing hard things. Yeah, yeah. Versus doing hard things that are worth doing, or doing hard things and then winning and succeeding and yeah. being able to reap the fruit of that. This is a little bit of shifting without the clutch, but I want to hear your kind of knee jerk reaction to this question. Like, how how would you define excellence? When you think about excellence, how how would you define that in your life? Oh. It's funny because when you say that to me, it almost makes me uncomfortable when I think of excellence. Hmm. And it's probably some imposter syndrome. But I also think it emanates from the idea of the definition of excellence to me is it's not an end state. And I know that almost sounds like cliche, but excellence is a pursuit. Mm -hmm. The pursuit of mastery, the pursuit of excellence to me is actually the most inspiring of human concepts. Hmm. When we, we think about the possibilities of who we could be, or what we could become and the idea that daily incremental improvement is available to all of us. I think that is why people love human potential so much and the concept of human performance, because it's, it's rooted in the very simple idea that the pursuit of mastery is available to all of us. And, and the reality is no matter where we are in that continuum, we're all in the same space of having to make improvements. And again, I think as you just suggested, what's really important is if you do that well, what becomes the lesson and the learning point is that you're you're doing it for this for for the altruistic sake of learning and bettering, not for achievement. And we've all I've certainly been caught in an earlier version of like this idea of self mastery for achievement or some some goal that is not really the what we're after. It's it's about this idea of improving our own life experience and ability to project higher value on those around us relationally. Yeah, like increasing our capacity to serve yeah. that value to people. I love that. By the way, I hinted at that, and I appreciate you saying explicitly, you know, like the self-improvement just for the sake of achievement can be really empty. Yep. Uh, and, and so I want to rewind just for a second because one of the first times I got a glimpse of this, I don't know if that's true or not. I see this in very many areas of your life, but it was punctuated for me when we were talking about your public speaking. So, you know, Brian does all sorts of manner of things. And because he's in an area of excellence, people are asking him oftentimes to come and address different crowds, whether it's surgeons or business leaders and those types of things. And we were just having a casual conversation and you told me a little bit about your process of how you prepare to speak. And, and just for our listeners who aren't necessarily public speakers, a lot of people, when they are public speaking or if they have a career in public speaking, they've got their talk in a can and then they, and they sell that talk in a can and then they go and they drop in and then they give their talk, their can talk, and then they leave. And no, no offense to that. That's great. However, you approach things a little bit differently. And when you told me that, I was just blown away by that. I think this is a great example of, of your pursuit of excellence. I appreciate that. I, I, I avoid at all costs what I mean, because if I'm being honest, I think canned speeches are intellectually lazy. And I think they do a disservice to the audience 
it doesn't mean you can't have thematically things that you say regularly, but to not give the audience the respect of the nuance of who they are in the environment. I often, I mean, that to me is unequivocally the best speeches I've ever seen or talks are people who understand the context of the listener. Hmm. And so the question is then, you know, for me, I mean, as, as you know, Jason and, and anyone who's in the world of speaking, I, I think people can, can, can get paid a, a, an insane amount of money to give a talk. Mm-hmm. And so on one hand, if I'm going to accept that, okay, how do I deliver that level of value commensurate with, with, with that, whatever that cost or price is. And at this event, it's interesting because it, 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 it actually, I think in a, in not the way you intended becomes a good example of the pursuit of mastery and being honest. So as you're alluding you know, for that particular event, our friend Michael Davidson, who knew that I was in the performance space, this particular company had a, a massive gathering. It was their annual sales event, so a lot of external players coming in, and it was a big moment for them, and they gave me the privilege of coming in to talk about performance and what that means. And so I asked them, I interviewed, I think, five people on their executive team, and then I asked for five other clients and did some research, just like you did before I came in the podcast, same process you have. Like It's really the what feels like the responsibility of delivering value. And so I did that. You and I talked, I think, one or two days before the event, where I was, I was going out that next week. I appreciated that you were aware of the fact that that's maybe unorthodox. But in my mind, it's like, if I'm going to deliver real value, I have to think differently about creating that value for each audience. Now, interestingly, if I'm being totally honest for your viewers here, I put, I don't know, I put a lot of time into that talk. I would say, I don't even know how to quantify it, but a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And given the fact that I frankly am, am running another business, it, that's the trade-off for me. Like, it, should I be doing this? Right. But I take it really serious. So I give that talk. And for anyone who does public speaking, if you're an experienced public speaker, you know five minutes in how you're doing 10 minutes in, like you can always tell how the audience is reacting to your content. And I knew about 20 minutes in that I was missing and it was the wrong content. (laughs) And despite the fact that I had been voracious in my preparation, I missed. In fairness, there were people in the room who were engaged. The mistake that I made is that I created a talk for a small cohort in the room that missed for the rest of the audience, which is a huge issue. You know, it's one thing to be in a room with executives having a conversation. That's often very different than like at a sales meeting where you have people who are there casually, who you want to have content that's a little lighter that people can connect with. And I definitely did not do the latter. And so after the event, I wrote an email to the CEO and COO and said, look, in my own being honest for myself and my pursuit of mastery, I recognize that I missed. And if you're a public speaker, it's binary. There is no middle ground. You either deliver a speech that people love or you don't. You can kid yourself into thinking it was okay, but it's either a a zero or a one. And I had a zero. And I said, number one, forgive me. Like, And they knew that I prepared. I said, I take full responsibility that I missed. Number two, I'm not going to allow you to pay me. And I would ask that you take the money you were going to spend on me and put it into some other investment in your team that you think will deliver what you were looking for. I don't say that to any way highlight myself. I say that because the pursuit of mastery for me is being honest when we don't deliver. And I did not deliver. And even though I had the process in place, there's blind spots that I didn't account for. Well, a couple of things about that, because there's some really great things there. One is here's to the man in the arena. So you showed up. 
you did your thing. You got into the arena and you had a process. And and just in case our listeners missed it, how many people did you interview <laughs> before going into yeah. this talk? Yeah, probably like 10 or 12, yeah. 10 or 12 people. And what were these interviews like? Just asking them about this particular brand, about they're heavily involved in Major League Baseball, so understanding the culture, all that, you know, and all the things you would want to know about everyone involved both directly to this brand and on the margins of it. Yeah, and why did you do that? Because there's at least two reasons when we talked, and I'll, I'm not going to ask you to remember that conversation as well as I apparently did, but look, there are at least a few reasons why you were doing that. Yeah, so so the first is context, and context is king. Like if you want to connect with an audience, you have to understand their problems. Like in my head, your point, it's, it's I don't have canned speeches, but I have thematically the things that I think are the most important for the people and leaders in the world to understand. Mm-hmm. The question is, how do I take those themes and package them for different audiences, because getting a theme about accelerating technology and Moore's law to resonate with a group of computer scientists is very different than a group of people who work in pro sports. Yeah. But it's equally important for both of them to understand. So the more that I understand that culture, I can take the context of their world and integrate it into my talk. So yeah. that's paramount for me. The second is I think it helps me build a real narrative of what I should talk about. Because if you really talk to 10 people all attached to a brand or a company, you can very quickly figure out where there's opportunities the things they do really well that should be highlighted to make people feel excited. So to me, it's just part of like, if you're on stage to deliver a message that is inspiring and action oriented, there's no way to do that without context of the people you're talking to. Yeah. And what I love about that for you, and I think about this a lot, this is public speakers and being a connoisseur of that craft. You know, I think I have a lot to learn, but I really love watching speakers and evaluating what they do that works and doesn't work. Uh, I've noticed that there are several different types of speakers. One is a speaker who seeks to educate or entertain. And then there's the other kind of speaker who speaking is a function of leadership for them. So they're Mm -hmm. not there predominantly to give a talk. They're there predominantly to lead people a certain direction. And I make up that you're the latter because if you're speaking to entertain or educate, the context is less important. Yeah, that's a good point. A friend of mine says that speaking is a form of theater, and it really is. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you're there to lead, it's like understanding. There's so many. I mean, there, this is actually a really fun, you know, diving into like the art of speaking. And, and this is what comedians do really well. Mm-hmm. I don't think I probably put, I should put more work in the theater of it. I do think that what I missed on in that talk was I have to be aware that to your point that I am someone who is the latter. I am better as a speaker in a room where it is more about leading around a specific idea or set of ideas. I'm not a good entertainer. I always say like a lot of people want to hire a former special operations person to come in and speak and entertain and like give this hard nose, like go after life and work out every morning. That's just not my style. I'm not good at that. Yeah. And I should have recognized in this instance that that was like one of the many things when I debriefed myself, I should have been more honest about what they needed and were looking for and the realities Mm -hmm. of how I tend to deliver content. There's always two lanes when it comes to growth and pursuit of mastery. One is how do you, and it's probably a paradoxical intersection of the two, but how do you stay in your lane and know what you're good at? And so when the when the arena, to not overuse that word, but like 50,000 people want to have you come and speak and lift the roof off of a house, you're like, hey, that's not really what I do. I do yep. X, Y, and Z. But I think there's the other part of that that says you're not good at that yet. Yeah. How much energy have you put into playing with your capacity to entertain and having a spoonful of sugar and having a bit that has a great joke in it or whatever? I mean, has that been something you've explored yet as a speaker? Absolutely. I could I could definitely learn from the Jason Jaggard school of comedy and, and uh, lightheartedness because <laughs> I do I do feel like your ability to subtly act like you're not trying to be funny and do it is like maybe one of the better art forms I've seen. I, I love it. 
and it's it's frankly i think you're also very good at just that authenticity of like not taking yourself too serious which i think i sometimes i oftentimes do i actually wildly sort of weird tangent unrelated to speaking but when i left the military a mentor of mine gave me advice on the fact that that entire genre of self-expression and creativity is wildly underserved in the military Mm -hmm. even if you're in special operations where there is quite a bit of creativity innovation it's still on a relative scale and so i was living in hawaii and i took a six-week improv class um (laughs) and it was it was definitely on the edges of my comfort zone but so valuable yeah but i do think that what you're alluding to more importantly is on the path to mastery how do we regularly get out over our own edge yeah. in the right way that's not overcommitting. And yeah. I actually think that's a learned skill. Yeah, and just a comment on that. I think one of the reasons why we're friends is because we have similar values in a lot of ways, but we're different in temperament and things. And I would seriously give, like, donate a body part to science to have an ounce of your executive presence. That's, yeah. the, <laughs> yeah. that's my growth curve, right? My growth curve, if your growth curve is not always coming across like you have everything absolutely together, which I think is absolutely competitive in the marketplace, my growth curve is learning how to, because I have more things together than I come across. And, yeah, so, yeah. and so there's a self-deprecation that happens there. And that's frankly, that's yeah. why I like being around you and some of our other mutual friends as I, I, I put on your way of being like clothes and be like, okay, what would yep. Brian do? Oh, he would act confident in this situation. Okay. What does it look like to do that? And it helps me grow. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You bring that up. I literally had this conversation yesterday about like, I was speaking to with a young woman who was grappling with imposter syndrome and, and she's like, people always perceive me as confident, but a lot of times I'm not. And I was saying that like, what's interesting is really leaning into being confident in who you are truly, because the, the danger, like when we get too confident, we can wing it. Mm-hmm. So recognizing that kind of where does one find that tension and how do we really grow into true confidence? I think the risk for me that I'm very aware of at this stage of my life is that when you have been confident in, in different mediums and you move into new ones and people are so used, you know, people will paint you as someone who has it all together you can kid yourself into being inauthentic when you don't have things together. Hmm. You know, that that's a whole nother discussion. But I, I think, again, in the spirit of one of my top values of being authentic in the world, like how does one know when you don't have it together and how does one signal that in the right way without falsely painting an inauthentic picture? Yeah. Another time we should have a, do another conversation around that, maybe offline and then see if there's any legs to it. Because I, I would love to explore that alongside of you. Yeah. Uh, Rediverting just for a second back to the conversation around excellence. Because you're right, there is a danger to developing a brand of excellence or even believing that excellence is inconsistent with mistakes. Yep. I'm learning in real time as you and I are talking. So it's not like I've. Well, it's it's interesting because even when you brought it up and said I associate with excellence, I'm like, oh, that's really like, it makes me uncomfortable because I don't think of myself at all as someone who. Now, to be clear, I'm not like, you know, I I, I am truly confident in, in the life that I've lived and I've learned hard lessons and I've been fortunate to grow. I mean, excellence is always something I'm pursuing, but I am fully aware I'm never going to get there. Yeah. Um, and I'm fully aware of my deficiencies, but I do, I do find it, it's such an inspiring topic. Yeah. Provided that someone is aware of, you know, they think of excellence in its totality as being aware of the areas we can improve and also knowing how to be confident in who we are without, you know, constantly being in the state of looking into the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so this is fun because maybe I want to redefine excellence then. Or maybe we're not talking about excellence. Maybe I'm trying to get at something else. Again, one of the things I admire about you, and I want to give a few biographical points to, to highlight this and then hear you comment on it, is your, your permission to put yourself in environments that are, if excellence is not the right word, maybe it's the, the, the best, 
You put yourself in environments where you have the opportunity to become the best or be surrounded by the best. And I'll, and I'll give you an example in contrast. You know, one of your first jobs was working for the Secretary of Defense. Mm-hmm. And that's normal for you. And, and probably another thing that's worth noting is excellence is always relative to the mm-hmm. individual. And so what occurs to me as inspiring as extraordinary may occur to you as normal and obvious. You know, so it doesn't it doesn't occur to me as obvious. And I think for many people, I I think about my nephews. When I went to school, when I went to college, I went to a state school and I went to a little private school next to the state school. And my pedigree is not impressive at all. And it didn't even dawn on me to go, I didn't even apply to like an Ivy League school or someplace where I'd be surrounded by some of the best minds, or the, even if not in the classroom, at least the people who are teaching the classes, never even crossed my mind. Like it wasn't like I chose not to do it. It wasn't even on my radar. Yeah. In contrast, and I think about my nephews, you know, I was asking one of my nephews, hey, where do you think about going to school? And he said a certain school. I was like, well, would you ever, he's brilliant. I mean, he's, he's my sister's son and she's just yep. a genius, right? And I feel like you consistently give yourself permission to put yourself among the best. Mm. I appreciate that. I think though, you and I share a very similar upbringing. I mean, I grew up in a modest environment mm-hmm. um, on a number of levels. I went to a state school. I did apply to Yale and I didn't get accepted. Mm-hmm. I actually always say, I, I don't know if there's such a thing as a healthy chip, but that for me was always like, I, I worked so hard and and I, you know, I still had an extraordinary experience in school. Like for me, it was learning the blessings of those environments. So here I am at a state school, which turned out to be a phenomenal, like, a, like just as I think life retroactively was what I needed then. What I was really learning, which I think gets to the root of your question, because I don't know that I have the answer of, okay, what is excellence? If we're, you know, what, what, what word do we use? And for me, yeah. my number one value, it, it, you know, probably for the last 15 years of my life has been humility. I think of humility, not as the absence of ego or braggadocious, but is a, is a true commitment to learning and knowing that no matter how much we've learned, there's more to learn, there's more to give, more to teach. And it's just a posture in the world which is open to new ideas and people. And, and I will say I've also absorbed that over time because the people who I've been privileged to be around or who've been mentors in some of those environments, uh, without fail, the, the, the ones who are the most impressive are the most humble. Mm-hmm. which I think is counterintuitive. It's like, oh, yes. this person would be really confident because they've reached the apex of their respective industry. But it turns out that those, like when I was in special operations, these guys who were revered warriors were always, they had the beginner's mindset. It was amazing. Can you give an example of that? What does that look like to talk to? And I like that you use the word warrior. I think that's not a word that in common vernacular gets used very often outside yeah. of perhaps the armed forces. What's an example of that? Like, who's a person that you revered, and what is an example of them having a learner's mindset? Yeah, so two examples immediately popped to mind. So one, my very first time I checked into my unit, and imagine this, you know, I'm you have zero experience other than training at this point. All of the men around you have have wartime experience, and some have a lot of wartime experience Hmm. in heavy combat environments, doing hard things. And so you're in a like a position where it's kind of like just be quiet and observe. And so there are certain people there who, by reputation of what they've done, everyone knows, like, hey, so-and-so, this, this you know, extraordinary performance in, in this battle or is known for, you know, um, leading X operation. Mm-hmm. And so there was an individual in my unit who had had a very revered past. And I got out of training and it was a bit awkward, but the, the team that I was joining was coming back from deployment. 
And after deployment at the time, they mandated these retreats. They were resilience retreats. And it was actually a very well-intentioned investment of resources. Because you can imagine when someone's gone for six to eight months fighting overseas in a war, you come back a fundamentally different person, whole different discussion, whole different podcast. Mm-hmm. Other people more schooled in that than me to talk about. However, like no matter what, you have changed in relation to your environment simply by being gone for six to eight months, let alone everything that's gone on. And that obviously manifests in relationships. Hmm. So the idea was, hey, we're going to have a retreat. The time I was in California, it was in Disneyland in Anaheim. Mm -hmm. You know, get a hotel room, three days, and they bring in extraordinary speakers on all sorts of things from like relational development to how do you get good sleep? How do you eat well? Hmm. And it's like this reset. You've come home from deployment. You've got time with your family. You You don't have to be anywhere. You're at Disneyland. You have free time. And so for a lot of these speakers, you might have someone, you know, some of these people are now famous, like Mark Sisson, who did the primal footprint, talking about the paleo diet as an example. Hmm. There's two schools of thought. One is the guy that says, hey, this is silly. I don't need this. I just got back from combat. And in some cases, it's probably, it's a reasonable way to think about it. Like, I don't want to be bothered with this right now. I want to be with my family in Disneyland. Yeah. There's another guy. And so in this case, one of these very revered personalities that I mentioned at this unit, despite the fact that he just come back. For every single event, he was in the front row, huh. taking notes, raising his hand. Huh. And here's a guy who just got back from an extraordinary deployment, doing very hard things in complex environments, and he is dialed into a, a, a talk on sleep and huh. trying to understand how he can incrementally improve his own sleep because he knows that's going to make him cognitively better in his job. Like That, to me, is a beautiful embodiment of, of humility. Yeah, and it's and it wasn't his first rodeo. I mean, how many tours of duty had he been on? I mean, I don't at that point. I mean, he was probably in his late thirties. He'd been in for almost twenty years already. You know, so he'd done a lot. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, and just to resonate with that, I just got back from the Global Leadership Summit, and it's one of the largest leadership conferences in the world. And most of the people who are the keynotes, or most of the people running the conference, like one guy, his name is Craig Rochelle, leads one of the largest faith communities in the country, and he was front row taking notes. I think I think a cynical person would say, well, he he's like has to be there or, you know, those types of things. But he, you know what? I was a, even if it's just modeling, like let's pretend like, you know, he's not super excited about the speaker. You, you know, the guy, the guy that you look up to is not excited about the speaker. I feel like leadership is saying, hey, even if this isn't predominantly for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to show up and take notes because I want to model for other people what they should be doing. Yeah. I would say vir- virtue is a practice. Yeah. Yep. It's interesting because it shows up in other ways. Like even that example you gave, I'm sure if you were to follow that person around enough, you'd see like, is that on an authentic behavior? Cause like, yeah, I can give you three or four examples of other people who I consider truly humble, who, you know, again, they sit down with the stranger and they're just, they're, they're authentically engaged in the conversation because it's, they want to learn from this person. Yep. And, and you just see it show up in a, it's just, it's a way of living. It's not like a, a particular practice at one moment in time. No, yeah, that's right. My, I guess my assumption is that's cultivated. You know, like it starts when you're young, but then as you, and probably for, I think for you, one, one of the things I like about the story of you prepping for your, for your talk is if you're listening to this, you can go back and listen to his language. It was almost entirely about serving the audience. So it wasn't about how good you were going to be. It wasn't about what mm-hmm. were people going to think about you. It was about how can I serve and I think that yeah. the intersection of virtue and servanthood yeah. is profound. And when you see, you know, like people you respect have been in the service for, for 20 years or people who are leading spiritually in a large way, like modeling, it is an act of service. And how, ironically, I wonder if committing yeah. to a life of service is one of the ways to guarantee that you're going to continually improve. I was just going to say that, Jason. 
I get uncomfortable going that far because I don't want to suggest I'm mandating mm-hmm. that people, that's the only place to find this. Even with the military, I don't think the military is for everyone. However, mm-hmm. people all the time in healthcare will come up and say, man, I, you know, thank you for your service type stuff. I can't imagine how hard it was. And I'm like, look, let's be honest. Like we revere the military and society, which I'm grateful for. But I promise you right now, many people in the front lines of healthcare are exposed to more stress mm-hmm. than a lot of people in the military ever were in the last 15 years. And so service is a a relative term. And I do think that being in a culture that is service oriented, whether it's healthcare, whether it's teaching, it is in service where I have found people who truly live humbly because the act of service, the act of wanting to understand how to serve another or another community requires context and understanding that only comes from listening and learning. Yep. And even to push that a little further, it seems like there's an X and Y axis of service and also expanding or growing your capacity to serve. Yep. Because I know a lot of people who are in a quite quote the service industry, like we'll even take my industry, like coaches, you know, it's a service industry. You're serving your clients and those types of things. But just because you're serving doesn't mean you're growing in your service. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. And so it's interesting to explore both. And I think you do a great job of that. And I want to come back to the putting yourself around the best thing for a second, but to put a period on this particular part of the conversation, I do enjoy you stretching yourself and your capacity to add value. That's definitely been learned. I think about this a lot. You asked this earlier. Is that an attribute that we acquire? Is it one we're born with? Is it one we cultivate? I definitely think, you know, some of these things get into higher, you know, way deeper conversations about like, I was really privileged to grow up where I probably felt the confidence of love that allowed me to take a little more risk. If I'm, if I'm being honest, even though I was in an environment that was modest, I never felt uncomfortable. I had, my grandfather was someone who just was always engaged in the world. So I learned a lot from him. Like there, there's these pieces that fit together, even in my daughter right now. Like, you know, I think about this idea of resourcefulness and confidence and, you know, pushing your own edges. Like it's, this is a bit of a tangent, but related to that question, mm-hmm. one of my dreams someday is to teach in a university. Mm-hmm. The first 15 minutes of every class will be dedicated to nothing to do with whatever I'm teaching. It will be the things that I think are most important to learn in life that we're not taught in school. Yeah. And that's, that's one of them, you know? Yeah. I love that. So I think that you're around a lot of modeling and I think you and I both could tell stories of people who are also around a lot of modeling and then it yeah. didn't stick for whatever reason. That would be a fun rabbit hole to go down another time. I also like that you got rejected from Yale and that it became like a little chip on your shoulder. Yeah. I was in this Q and A with Larry King years ago before he passed away. And someone else asked, what makes the most interesting guest? And he said, you know, it's someone who's intellectually curious, they're self-deprecating, all this kind of stuff. And then he said, and I never forgot, he said, someone who has a chip on their shoulder. (laughs) I never was like, you know, bitter about it. But it was interesting because after my junior year of college, I got an internship at the White House, which at the time for me was like, the most insane opportunity in my life. Yeah. Well, hold and, on. Can we can we just I don't want to sort circuit this story, but this is just another example of how you drop this stuff like it's normal. How do you get an internship at the White House? Don't you have to apply? Uh you do. I mean, it's it's about definitely, you know, some degree of serendipity because the summer before, it was a, it was actually a really crazy moment in time. The summer before was 2001, the summer before 9/11. After my sophomore year of college, I interned my congressman where I went to college was John Boehner. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I don't, I think he, I don't think that you know, he wasn't the speaker of the house yet. He was the head of the education committee, which was doing, if you remember president Bush, when he was elected before nine 11, his main platform was education. Mm-hmm. And so I interned for my congressman because I was studying international relations and I, a buddy, I was a classic, just got lucky and had this internship in the course of that summer. Hold I on. met the white house intern coordinator. Okay. This is all great. 
and and I I totally you know I love serendipity, luck, or God, or whatever mm-hmm. we're gonna call the conversation. And I do think there's a degree of putting yourself in the position for serendipity or blessing or whatever to happen. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I don't I don't want to sound overly. Hon- I mean, if I'm being honest, I, I think about it a lot. I mean, I um, it gets to part of our conversation. The blessing of how I grew up was I grew up in a modest environment. So like these things to me, when you know, number one. I was very intellectually curious and very curious about people. And I was fortunate to learn how to make connections to people. And I think because I was so passionate at that point in my life, people were like, okay, let, I want to help this, this young guy. So I'd, I would jump in and, and, and that's how I got this internship. However, when I got to DC and was on Capitol Hill, um, I get chills thinking about it now. Like at that point in my life, it was my family was super proud. It was a yeah. big deal. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I was the guy who would literally do anything. And I never went home because I'm like, I get to work in the Capitol right now. I'm, I'm just going to keep doing this. And so I worked so hard and I was so fascinated. And I thought, I'm like, I get to meet all of these epic people. That in and of itself then becomes, you know, it, it, there's a, a law of attraction there. Like someone sees this young guy works really hard. Like, and, and in the course of that, I met the White House intern coordinator. Um, and that led to an internship that following summer. So I always say, like, I think we can overuse the mantra of like hard work. And I always say, like, who you know gets you in the door. But it's it's ultimately like you still have to have like a higher order skill set and like just yep. hard work. And and I was learning to cultivate that. But to bring it back to the point about Yale, that summer when I interned in the White House, a lot of the, the other interns were really decorated, sort of from a pedigree perspective. Mm-hmm. And I you know, I'd come from this state school in Ohio that turned out to be like the richest experience in the world in terms of mentors and professors who guided me into that experience. But as a result, I felt like I need to work twice as hard as all these people because I'm not from, you know, a, one of those pedigrees. And it, I think it served me well and I had a healthy balance. But I, I, yeah, I think a chip on your shoulder can actually be really good. Yeah. And there's a couple of things there. One is how do you design these are rhetorical questions, I suppose, but for people listening, because there is a little bit of like WWBD, like what would Brian do in terms of, because I feel like you have successfully stepped into and continue to step into spaces where you give yourself permission to be around the best. You're not afraid to ask for help, or at least you, you work through that fear. And then you make sure I'm putting a lot of words on you, but like my experience of watching you is you put yourself around the best, you work your ass off, and then you're a good steward of the help that other people give you. You're committed to being a good steward of whatever opportunities come to you. Yeah. The left and right hook of that is putting yourself in a position to have opportunity. And then when it comes, making sure that you make the most of it. And someday you're going to give a talk at uh, <laughs> you know university in France. And, <laughs> yeah. And I think it is this thing, like you know, because a lot of the people that Teddy was talking to in that room had had gotten there, but they didn't have to work that hard to get there. Yeah, yeah. And it's never too late, you know, so it's not like a statement of their future. But the audience, I want to ask, what are the what are the things you're passionate about? And how do you put yourself around the people who are the best at that thing? Yep. And and then how do you learn to enjoy the pressure that comes with that to then work really hard to be a good steward of that opportunity? If you can do those two things, I think people will look at your life and they'll start using words like luck to describe it. Yeah. And I actually think, Jason, I've thought a lot about this. The question I'd pose to you and your audience that I don't, I still don't know the answer to, but mm-hmm. if I was going to really extrapolate as high order as possible, I would, I would put the umbrella term, the skill set that I was fortunate to be either exposed to, to cultivate, acquire as resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. And resourcefulness, like as an example, 
uh, well, I hesitate to say this, but because I don't want to sound self-indulgent, but when I think about the reason I have arena labs right now, mm-hmm. at the time I was still in the military. I wanted to go learn from high performing teams and I wanted to understand how they worked. I knew the Cleveland Clinic Heart and Vascular Institute was the number one institution in the world. And so I blindly emailed a heart surgeon there and said, Hey, I'd love to come in and chat. And so those are the things. And like, I couldn't actually articulate where that comes from, but I learned that when I was younger and I look at other people who are creating opportunity. And I think the more we rely on a passive system to serve us, like the less, the less our chances of realizing the things we want to do are. Yeah. I think it was my daughter all the time because one of my favorite podcasts is, um, aside from yours is how I built it. (laughs) And, so and say it again. I was laughing at your joke. Say it yeah. again. <laughs> is uh, how I built this. Yes. Guy Raz. And if you listen to every one of those stories, there is a moment. The one that I love is uh, Sarah Blakesley from Spanx. Yeah. Yeah. And she I'm like likely. realized that no one in a department store actually regulates when these outside vendors bring stuff in to sell. It's sort of a free for all where it's like, hey, Spanx has been approved to be a Nordstrom. So just like, here's where your, your little cart is. And she realized if she moved the cart, no one knew that she moved it or like had regulation to say you shouldn't be moving your cart from X place to Y. So she started just putting her carts by the checkout register because she realized there was a much higher likelihood that people were going to pick one up and buy it. And like that small thing, it changed the course of her company. And that is it's like the it's the ability to recognize a complex environment and figure out how to navigate it in a way where, you know, you can meet someone. I don't know. I, I still haven't figured that out. And uh, it's it sits on my mind a lot. So no, well, I like that. A couple of things about that. One is in our firm, we talk a lot about the difference between being a resource versus being resourceful. Yeah, you know, it's so like you can get hired because you're a resource, but you'll stick around and add value if you become resourceful. And which is a little bit of a side point, but I like the way you're talking about resourceful. Is it seems like as though you have a belief that there is help available or there are possibilities, and all you have to do is reach out and ask. And why not? You know, actually, I'm I'm curious if this is what you're learning right now, because you know how to work hard, you know how to put yourself in environments that demand your best and where you're surrounded by the best. With with Sarah's story, there's almost like a path of least resistance but maximum output. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's like it's like cheating, but not. It's like yeah. a behind the back pass that looks like you shouldn't be able to do it. Yeah, I I actually and I again I don't have a good word for it. I, it's one I hope to find eventually. But it's one of the reasons I'm, I'm obsessed with complexity science, because mm-hmm. no matter what someone does in today's world, the world has become more complex. There's more mm-hmm. information. There's more data. We're being asked to make decisions faster with more information. So it's like in that people who understand how to simplify complexity advantageously, whether that's to serve others, whether that's to get margin and profit, typically rise to the top. But it's a paradox because in order to simplify complexity, you can't be simple-minded. You actually have to understand the complex system. Yes. So that is a really fascinating meta skill, which is, okay, I can go in and understand a complex system. I can see where the pain points are. And I know if I pull these two levers, I can actually change the course of that system yeah. versus someone who goes in and gets absorbed in the complex system and overwhelmed and actually has no effect. Okay. So then this might be a nice way to wrap down the conversation, at least for now. And yeah. by the way, if you can't tell, anytime I hang out with Brian, it's like, so it's just so much fun. <laughs> yeah. I just love your mind. This, I just looked at the clock and I can't believe we've been talking this long. So I hope the audience is having as much fun as we are. If not, at least you and I get a good conversation. The, well, that's true. And just, <laughs> just so you know, I carry a few people in my heart when we have these conversations. And so like, I, I'm so grateful as you're talking, I'm thinking, 
Uh, I cannot wait for so-and-so to listen to this. It's going to be awesome. so valuable. So thank you. By the way, it's not every day that a person says, yeah, I'm really interested in complexity theory. I think that's one of the reasons why I love that. I mean, maybe that's normal in your world, but that's not the way more, yeah. most people talk. I'm setting up a little bit to talk about the uh, Santa Fe Institute yeah, and yeah. the Singularity yep. University. Most people, I don't think, have heard of those organizations, and I would love for them to know what those organizations are. Uh, before you tell them what that is, what, did you get an interest for complexity theory from those spaces, or did you have that and it led you to those spaces? I've come to believe that every leader in today's world needs to understand two things. The first is the impact of accelerating technology on the speed of change. For people who've studied computer science, that's Moore's Law. Mm-hmm. But at a very basic level, when we think about the fact that more computational capacity in our world and everything we do from the fact that we're having this conversation live on a podcast to what our phones can do, as we get more technology because of advanced computational capacity, it's actually changing the course of our lives. And I saw this play out on the battlefield when I was in the military. You saw what advanced technology was doing. It gave al-Qaeda a supremacy that no non-state actor could have had prior to 9-11. It also then allowed the U.S. to have a paradigm-shifting evolution in national security because we could use things like drones and different intelligence. Whatever one thinks politically about these things, the technology was fundamentally altering the the landscape. That's true in agriculture. It's true in education. It's true in defense. And that all comes back to Moore's Law and the the realities of, of what computer chips have done to modern life. As a result of that, Every discipline I've ever been around is confounded by complexity because, again, there is more information. We are more interconnected. It's the, the world seems like it's moving faster. It's harder to discern what strategy should be. And so people who understand those two things can be very effective in navigating the world. For me, I saw, I saw that play out in a raw way, again, when I was deployed. And the answers then when I started to look around, I was directed to Singularity University, which is in Mountain View, California which mm-hmm. is dedicated. It's a partnership between Google and NASA. And what they look at is essentially just that, the impact of accelerating technology on every vertical in society and how that plays out for leaders. You know, If you look at the reality of robotics or artificial intelligence, just look at the tensions in our democratic system in the last two elections, that mm-hmm. it's all a result of technological advancement. And then it, um, I was introduced to someone named Dr. David Krakauer, who's the president of Santa Fe Institute on Complexity. One of the coolest organizations in the country that most people don't know about. It's in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It it came out of Los Alamos National Laboratory. A number of Nobel laureates came together and looked at the fact that most of us are taught to navigate the world through the singular lens of a discipline that we acquire, whether that's biology, mathematics, physics, physiology, English, you name it. And yet it is only in the intersection of all those disciplines that we can truly make sense of the world. But at a very basic level, how do we in a multidisciplinary way build models of the world that are more predictive or accurate than the average model that comes out of a singular discipline? And so at Santa Fe, they do things like, um, you know, a famous investor named Bill Miller came up with some very advanced financial modeling as a result of using complexity science. You look at something like evolutionary biology and, and, you know, how do those systems play out in like financial markets? It's like crazy, the connection. So um, I could go on about it. I'll pause there. Super cool stuff. And they have applied side, which they come into businesses and help business think about complexity science as it relates to modern strategy and business execution. 
Yeah, well, and that's that might be a good period. Uh, if that sounds interesting to you, check those things out. And of course, Brian, what I love about you is like I've heard about, I'll use me as a foil and I don't mean to be self-deprecating, but I do love being around people who inspire me and you're definitely one of those people. So, you know, so like I've known Thank about you. the Santa Fe Institute for like probably decades. I read a, I read a book by Andy Clark called Natural Born Cyborgs and that came out like 1997 or something and read about the Institute. I was studying chaos theory when I was in high school. Never crossed my mind to like reach out to them and hang out with them and go to a thing mm -hmm. and like be surrounded by these people and watch it happen in real time. And you over and over and over again have consistently put yourself in environments where you can be around the best. And I think that's only benefited your life. And I, I imagine a world where leaders and artists and creatives give themselves permission to advocate for themselves to be in those spaces and then rise to the challenge. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is to be able to capture that in a bottle for a little bit and have people get introduced to you. For sure, I want to have you come back. And uh, thank you so much for, of course, for your service uh, to our country, but also uh, for your service to humanity as you seek to find the intersection between technology and high performance, especially for people in the medical field. Thanks a lot, Brian. Really humble. Thanks a lot, Jay. Appreciate it. Yep. Have a good week, man. All right, you too. Cheers. Thank you for listening. For more resources like this, as well as articles and videos by all of our coaches, go to novus.global and click on resources. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. That helps us out a lot. Rate and leave a review. If you didn't like us, just leave us alone. We drop new episodes every week and we don't want you to miss out. If you want to explore hiring a Novus Global Coach or becoming an executive coach at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching, email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. And remember, dare to go beyond high performance.